Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. I really don't know how this plays out. We also don't know a ton about this, you know, virus. So there's so many open questions. I just have a really hard time making predictions because I don't know how the outbreak's going to change. Hi, Benjamin Thompson here with episode two of Coronapod. I'm in my South London basement, and once again I'm joined from, well, dozens of miles away by Noah Baker, Nature's chief multimedia editor. Noah, hi. Hi. Yeah, I'm also sitting back in my little booth talking to California, as you do in a pandemic. Amy, you're thousands of miles away, and you're Amy Maxman, of course, senior reporter here at Nature. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? We're doing okay here, I think. I mean, last week we all spoke about being in lockdown. How how are you both coping with it? Lockdown's intensified in the UK. So the government has now officially said that we, by law, aren't allowed to go outside and there shall be fines. Our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and our Health Minister, Matt Hancock, have both now tested positive for the coronavirus. So they're self-isolating. Everything's become even more real, if possible. Yeah, over here, it seems fine. I'm just like growing out my bangs and my toenails. But I just talked to one of my sources and he pointed out something very wise, which is the disaster right now and the hotspots is inside of hospitals. So it looks really good here. But if you see any of the reports coming out of New York City, for example, it's it's just terrifying. It is amazing the difference, actually. I mean, so we I'm sitting here in a rural area and it's sunny outside, but I have friends that are contacting me that are currently in ICUs. And it's it's this really strange comparison between relatively sort of the world is standing still and this, you know, war zone within the walls of hospitals. Well, maybe we should head straight away to hospitals in New York then, because I know that's something that you've been looking at this week, Amy, and uh, and some scientists who are searching for, I mean, I don't know if treatment is the right word or, or, or what it is, but, but people who are searching for something to try and fight the virus. Yeah, so right now in New York, it's really under siege. So there's been more than 30,000 cases and 325 deaths, and hospitalizations seem to be doubling every four or five days. Governor Cuomo is yelling about how they don't have enough ventilators to kind of serve the growing population, or not right now, but in the near future. So it's really suddenly gone from a thing that, oh, this seems to be spreading in the community to, wow, our hospitals are being overwhelmed. There's reports of nurses there who don't have protective gear. So it's already at kind of disaster point. And that's kind of a sign of how dramatic it is, is that uh, now 
there's kind of a push to use the blood from people who have recovered from coronavirus to help patients. It's something that, you know, doctors have used for the past century in outbreaks, but it's kind of like a old sort of brute force sort of thing where you hope that the person who survived has made enough antibodies that you can then take their blood after they've you know, recovered from the virus, kill the viruses within that blood, and then put that into somebody that has the disease, hoping that the antibodies from the other person help them fight off the virus. So is this just a case of taking someone's blood, centrifuging it, and then injecting that physically into somebody else? Or is there more to it than that? Nope, you got it. I mean, you're going to screen that serum and all of that. Besides that, yeah, that's basically it. So the hope is that they can kind of start putting survivor blood into patients you know, as early as next week, the FDA just classified convalescent plasma, that's a more precise term for survivor blood, as an investigational drug, which means that doctors can decide to use it compassionately, even though it's not like approved like a drug would be. And it also means that now the FDA can start evaluating protocols from researchers who want to run trials on convalescent plasma to see if does this actually work. I have to say, Amy, that when I first heard this story as well, and you started telling me about it, I was also really shocked. This feels like, you know, it feels like century old technology. It feels like century old medicine. And you don't expect it to be happening in New York City. No, I was surprised too. And I have to say, I I keep being reminded of when I was reporting in Sierra Leone during the Ebola outbreak. Um, a lot of the things I saw there are happening now. And this is one of them. Like, for example, when I was in Sierra Leone, there was a big push by some of the clinician scientists there to try out convalescent plasma, as they're doing right now. And their push was like, hey, I know you've got Ebola drugs in development, but we need to do something right now. And what do we have right now? Right now, we have survivors. And another similarity is in both cases, you have just really the goodwill of people who have recovered from it was Ebola before, it's coronavirus now. People who've recovered who say, I want to help, I want to give my blood. So it's um, a product that people have right away. And New York isn't the only place considering this approach, right? China has also been running trials. China ran a number of trials. So China was on this you know, pretty quickly as well. So they were running trials on convalescent plasma. Those trials aren't published yet, so I don't know how many people actually ended up being enrolled. Um, but early data that's uh, come out in preprints and that I heard about through emails with some of the investigators involved are that, you know, in small numbers of people, like say 13 patients who are infused, um, nothing bad happened. So there were no adverse reactions, which is very important. I wonder kind of maybe a naive question. Do we already sort of have a bit of a, you know, a safety trial in that these are essentially blood transfusions, which are done every day? Or is there really potentially a risk that blood transfusions of people with these antibodies could be dangerous? So yeah, it does seem relatively low risk because, right, exactly. This is a product that's, you know, blood is used all the time. And we do know, although the risk is not non-zero, it seems like, especially in places like the U.S., we have the ability to give blood transfusion safely. There is another thing people are worried about. It's called antibody enhancement. And I don't, to be honest, I don't fully understand it, but the idea is that you might cause a huge, a massive sort of inflammatory response that could happen. Um, and that's been a fear. So that's why the data coming out of China from the preliminary study, that kind of suggests, okay, hopefully we don't need to worry about that a lot. Do we know maybe how long protection might last for someone who, who does receive this serum? And when's the best time to give it to them? 
So that's an, an open question is how long it lasts. One researcher who's leading this effort who I spoke with, she said, you know, it might not last more than a couple of weeks. In fact, she doesn't think it will. Because with a vaccine, you get somebody to generate their own immune response that lasts longer. Um, this is not that. So it might not be, it might only be for a couple of weeks, um, but that would be enough. All of the researchers I spoke with were very clear that they really hope that this is used either to prevent COVID-19 in people at high risk, namely health workers, or, um, you know, soon after an infection within five days of symptoms before sort of people's re start going into respiratory failure. So in the case of like a person who's within five days of showing symptoms, if you're able to prevent them from needing to go on a ventilator to breathe and to get into the ICU, the intensive care unit, that's huge. So this is a kind of a stopgap measure. It's maybe not something that's going to increase your survivorship a ton. But what it will do is mean if you've got patients who are severe enough that they're going into the hospital, but don't yet need to be on a ventilator, it means if you can prevent them from getting onto a ventilator, then those beds are free for people who need them. And the more people you can keep out of the ICU, the better on hospitals that is. I'm also interested because this technique seems like something that if we look forward at the potential challenges that are coming up, it's something that if it were to work, could be really, really useful to countries that have fewer resources than the states. I mean, I think that's a great point, especially because we don't know what resources are going to look like. Um, we don't know, you know, there's an antiviral drug remdesivir that's being tested. Um, people are talking about chloroquine, this malaria drug. You know, what if there's stockouts, which I don't see why that's not impossible. What if countries can't afford those drugs? You know, blood is relatively cheap. Of course, you need to have the ability to, you know, screen blood and do transfusions. But yeah, it's a, it's in some ways, it seems much more practical. Uh, and I think to be clear, I think the idea of isolating antibodies and formulating them into drugs is better. Like, I, I think that's a great idea. It's just that it's going to take some time. And once those are made, those also might be very expensive. And, you know, we could have patent issues with those. So blood is sort of, it's a practical measure. Well, Amy, you mentioned uh, several other drugs there as well. Chloroquine is, is the one that's getting a lot of attention at the moment. What's the state of, of play for people looking for other treatments that can be used? Uh, the fact is on chloroquine, we don't have much data right now. Um, I think uh, President Trump overstated what we know about it. And, you know, like, there's a couple of drawbacks. One is it very likely can have side effects. So it's not something that people should take frivolously. I think there's been a couple of deaths from people who did uh, just sort of take it on their own. The other thing to keep in mind is people still use that for malaria and for other diseases. So it's not something we want to just stock out of right away. Uh, originally, so China's tested it and they tested it based on preclinical work in animals, suggesting it could have some benefit. I haven't seen all of the data out of China on chloroquine. But it's, it's very much still an open question at this point. The WHO um, launched a forearm clinical trial that's going to be run in several countries that's comparing the antiviral remdesivir to this HIV drug combination to the HIV drug combination plus interferon, which also has side effects, and then comparing that one to chloroquine. So it's a kind of head-to-head -head trial going to look at the effects of all of these, which will be nice. So we're, we're talking about what we can do at the moment 
um, with developing vaccines, developing drugs. You know, these things are, I guess, to some extent, they're they're the exciting, they're the end game, they're the future, they're the cure. There's always this tendency to look for the cure, but at the same time, there's these other measures. There's these these measures like social distancing, these measures like contact tracing, which maybe are less sexy, maybe are less sort of exciting. They're not the end game, but they're still important. Oh, it's so important, and I think. Maybe that's one reason why we're so behind right now in the U.S. and in Europe is there's been a big focus on vaccines and drugs. And yes, those are incredibly important. I mean, vaccines might be how in the end we get out of this thing, but that's not going to help us um, in the next year at least. So kind of my big fear in the U.S. is if you remember in China, the government was also very slow to kind of acknowledge that they had an outbreak. But once it was clear that it was big in Wuhan, not only did they lock down Wuhan, but they also very aggressively began testing and doing contact tracing across the country. What really worries me about the U.S. is we do not have a cohesive response right now. So we can see that New York is a disaster. We saw that Seattle was being hit hard a few weeks ago. And yet at the same time, we have certain states that are still discussing whether or not they want to do social distancing. You know, I know just a few days ago, I'm not sure about right now, Florida still had all of their restaurants open. People were still out and about. There was big spring break parties on the beach. That's really worrisome. There are even some countries in Europe right now that are taking the different tack. You know, the current proposal in Sweden is that they still haven't closed things. Yeah, it makes me nervous. And of course, as this develops, um, there are these natural experiments that keep popping up, which are teaching us really invaluable things. So one thing that people have been talking about this week is um, the people that have been stuck on cruise ships have actually provided epidemiologists which are with a really vital um, tool to sort of study how this virus moves between people. And those results are now coming back. Yeah, the cruises are interesting because a big problem is that we haven't been able to get a handle on the denominators in this outbreak. Like by not knowing how many people are infected, either asymptomatically or with mild symptoms, it's really hard to answer some basic questions. So the cruise, particularly the Diamond Princess cruise off of Japan, that had 3,700 passengers, and I think I heard more than 3,000 of them were tested. So that just basically gives us some place to start. And so the data that's come out from that is that there was a case fatality rate of 1.1%. That means of all the people who had symptoms, who were cases, 1.1% of them passed away. They also had an infection fatality rate, and that's something I really haven't heard a lot about. That's how many people are infected, asymptomatic or symptomatic, and that's 0.5% of those ended up dying. So that's a 0.5% infection fatality rate. Those are useful numbers to have because so far, we've really only been able to guesstimate at the case fatality rate, and that varies depending on the country and over time because you know various hospital interventions will keep people from dying and also the number of cases that are detected varies. Um, so it's nice to have that 1% number. Absolutely. It's so helpful to have this sort of cruise experiment, I suppose, as baseline data, because otherwise it's really hard to to compare different approaches in different places and different hospitals when all the numbers have so many different variables with them. And I think that's a story that we could continue talking about as time goes on. Although governments might be sort of taking different tacks, as you say, it seems that scientists are pulling together. Yeah, I think that's kind of a really... You know, if there's something that's cool about this outbreak, that's it to me. Um, the way that scientists are sort of, you know, traditionally they're competitive with one another. I'm just seeing scientists from every field 
suddenly not be competitive and just really drop what they're doing in other ways to help out with the response however they can. And this convalescent plasma business is an example of that. There's a researcher at John Hopkins who about a month ago realized that convalescent plasma might be really important here. And he kind of had a tactic where he first decided he wanted to get the idea into newspapers so that everybody would start talking about it, including politicians. So he wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. Then he got a bunch of people doing all sorts of things, statisticians, immunologists, epidemiologists, clinicians, and ended up being about 100 of them. And, you know, what I heard was that they started working on this in their separate lanes. So say the statisticians started working out, okay, how are we going to share data? What data are we going to collect? And the people who knew about blood transfusions talked about how they were going to actually do that logistical part of it. Uh, The virologists started talking about, okay, what kind of assays can we use to look at antibodies? They talked to people they knew who knew about regulations because we need to get this through the FDA. We need to get institutional review boards to approve the ethics of the study. And they started, they have a site now where they're sharing their protocols online. So they want to have as many institutions that are interested, that are affiliated with hospitals, start working on this. And I think the list already includes Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. There's Mount Sinai. They're working with John Hopkins, Washington University the Mayo Clinic, and I've heard that um, other universities are also signing on to it too. So that's just another effort. It's similar to what we talked about last week where the scientists who are at that small NIH meeting realized they had to do a grassroots effort in contact tracing. Um, You know, I even talked to one researcher who was telling me that she's been hooking up with kind of more early career scientists who are no longer working in their labs who've offered to help them write grants because the people that need to be doing research right now on coronavirus don't have time to be writing grants. So there's people who work in, you know, different fields who just know about a field who can help them write grant proposals. Nature actually published an editorial in its pages this week, which I think we just titled, We're With You. Um, And the intention was just to say that, you know, nature is facing a lot of the same problems that other people are facing and we're struggling to create an issue and we're trying to, and we've tried to commit to do things to try to help as much as we can. Makes me proud. Makes me proud too, I have to say. Yeah, I'll I'll add my voice to that as well. I think it's amazing work from everyone who who is doing the research right now. Um, Amy, What's catching your eye then for for the next seven days? Obviously, this is a massively sort of moving and developing story, but uh, what what are you interested to hear in in the forthcoming days? Well, you know, I'm looking at a few things. I think usually I write about, I mean, I've been covering outbreaks for a really long time now. I'm used to covering low-income countries and lower-middle-income countries, and suddenly I find myself in the middle of an outbreak that looks very much like what I've seen in other places, but I'm here. So I've been really, you know, putting my head around what's happening in the U.S. However, I think, you know, in the coming weeks, I'm looking a lot, you know, I'm going to be looking, taking a more global view and seeing what are other countries doing. I think what we'll start seeing emerge is some countries that we might not have expected having a really sleek response. And of course, other countries are going to be hit just terribly. Think about places that, you know, don't have any ventilators. Yeah, agreed. And there's so many more questions, as I said last week, to ask. And, uh, and I hope you'll both join me again next week to, to keep going through them. So, uh, Amy and, uh, and Noah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Benjamin and Noah. Yeah, thanks, everyone. And stay safe at home. As Amy mentioned, researchers are really pulling together in these difficult times. And in many cases, they're shifting focus or changing lanes completely to help in the fight against COVID-19. Reporter Nick Howe spoke to a couple of researchers who are putting their expertise into action.
across the world, labs are shutting down and scientists are finding themselves in lockdown. Right now, is, uh, we are in isolation. <laughs> you know, it's the uh, quarantine. There's far fewer people around and at certain times of the day, it definitely feels like a bit of a ghost town. It's a very strange, strange situation. But instead of completely closing up shop, many scientists are mobilising to tackle the coronavirus. I've reached out to some of them, and here are a couple of their stories. First up, I spoke to Nick Girardin, a researcher at the University of Melbourne in Australia. When I spoke to him, Australia hadn't implemented the sort of lockdowns we've seen in many parts of Europe and China, but it had closed all but essential businesses. Labs were shutting down too. Nick has still been going to work, but that's because his lab has been moving towards working on coronavirus. It sort of it, it started off very slow. As we were sort of watching the situation evolve in, in coming out of China, I guess, there was growing interest and also growing concern about the you know, about the situation. So we started, you know, dabbling a little bit and sort of thinking, oh, how is there any possible way we could get involved? You know, that very, very rapidly as as the sort of pandemic spread and, you know, it was all of a sudden on our shores, it was, it was a very, very rapid transition to, okay, well, now we're only working on COVID-19. When labs started shutting down, Nick said there wasn't really much of a question of whether he would continue to go in or not. I'm personally really excited actually to be able to come in and get involved in this work. The same was true of many of his colleagues. He told me that everyone was trying to see how they could help with the situation. Nick works on immunology, looking at how white blood cells can recognise infection, which made the switch to coronavirus quite straightforward. We have excellent experience with generating proteins in the lab. So we were able to clone and generate recombinant proteins and then use these proteins to assess immune responses from either blood samples or patient sera or these sorts of things. Nick's work on the virus is still in the very early stages, but he says it could potentially be leveraged towards diagnostics or even treatment applications. As everyone pulls together, Nick says the next few weeks and months are going to be very busy for him and his colleagues, but he's trying to stay optimistic. You know, I, I try to keep a positive outlook. I, th- I think we're in for a pretty, yeah, interesting week, few weeks and months ahead. I think there's going to be a lot of heartache. You know, there's going to be a lot of really sad stories to come out of this. But I think ultimately, it will pass. I also spoke to Julio Valdivia a scientist at the Universidad de Ingeniería y Tecnología in Lima, Peru. At the moment in Peru, there are around 600 cases of the virus, relatively few compared to many countries. But, as Julio told me, the government there has swiftly locked things down. You can only leave your home for essential purposes or if you have special permission. Julio is a bioengineer, so he has such special permission, and he's been using it to help develop a new kind of ventilator. Because in the entire country, we have just 400. So it's not enough to to help people if the situation go to a worse scenario. No? At tens of thousands of dollars per unit, Peru cannot afford the numbers of ventilators that they may need. 
so Julio has been helping to create the kind that would be cheaper and more readily available. He and a team of engineers have developed an early prototype. It's got a way to go, but costing only $500, he thinks things are looking promising. Because we are uh, using different parts, no? it's just like a testing prototype, but our prototype is, is, I think, is working very well. Whilst it may be a bit of a Frankenstein's monster, Julio's prototype ventilator is smaller than conventional ones and would be easier to mass-produce. He hopes it will be able to help in resource-poor places that may be more at risk. But it wasn't straightforward for Julio to start working on making ventilators. Previously, he had worked on microfluidics, technologies to manipulate fluids, which are quite different from a ventilator. But he did have some other skills, though. He's got medical experience and has worked for NASA, so he knows a thing or two about getting people the right amount of air. I'm trying to bring this knowledge together, these this areas together, and uh, with other researchers, engineers as well, uh, trying to uh, think about all solutions, but more local solutions. There are still some kinks to be worked out in Julio's ventilator, but there are a number of other teams working around the world on this problem, and Julio says they're all cooperating. We are comparing our prototypes with the MIT right now. MIT uh, launched a prototype and we are comparing with Colombian people that they have another uh, prototype. So the interesting now is we are um, having more communication and at the same time we're supporting initiatives to build components, for example, or tools that help doctors such as masks or age protectors using 3D technologies as well. So it's a different, different areas. No people is helping, trying to help. And it's very nice. We are clearly living in extraordinary times and researchers are coming together to meet the challenge of the pandemic. If there is a positive to come out of the outbreak so far, it's the solidarity of the science community. Here's Nick from Australia again. You know, the the work that I'm doing at the moment, we're doing it highly collaboratively and sort of almost in an unprecedented way. Uh, We're working with other institutions and, you know, doing things that would otherwise normally require the lawyers getting involved and that sort of thing. And we're just pushing ahead. And so there is also there's a really good sense of um, camaraderie um, in the in the community at the moment, not only within our institute, but across institutes um, and, and around the world, I think. So that's it for another edition of CoronaPod. You can find all the latest news on the outbreak over at nature.com slash news. We're back again next week with another edition of the show. If you'd like to reach out to us with stories of how the outbreak has affected your lab work, or if you'd like to send us a picture of your home working setup, then you can do so on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. And speaking of Nature Podcast, there's a corona-free version of the regular show coming out on Wednesday as usual. I've been Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.